Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and I'm really delighted that you chose to spend your Friday evening here with us, at least for a few hours. Um, we're delighted to welcome Gary Steingart to the Pratt Library and the Edgar Allan Poe Room. His award-winning novels include Super Sad True Love Story, Absurdistan, and The Russian Debutante's Handbook. Um, Super Sad True Love Story, for example, was selected as one of the best books of the year by more than 40 newspapers and magazines around the world. In his memoir, Little Failure, now out in paperback, Steingart shares his American immigrant experience with the same humor that we loved in his novels. The best-selling author Mary Carr described it as, and I quote, a memoir for the ages. I spat laughter on the first page and closed the laugh, the last with wet eyes. Please join me in welcoming Gary Steingart. Gary's um, going to <clears throat> excuse me. Gary's going to sit here, and I'm going to go sit down. Can yes? Yeah, sorry, I'm a sitter kind of person. Is that sir? I'll try to sit up. I wish I had a, a, a Passover pillow of some kind. Uh, great to be great to be back in Baltimore. Um, love this place. Uh, I was just in the Sendak Museum, uh, posing in that cutout of the little yeah yeah, and I tweeted that out, and people loved that. Uh, what else happened to me today? I ate a, I ate a really fluffy uh, uh, crab cake. I mean, it was complex. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so I'll read a little bit from, uh, from this book. Um, and um, then we'll, you know, I'll take some questions or complaints or concerns that you may have. Um, the way we do it is the first person brave enough to ask a question will get a T-shirt uh, yeah, right? This is upping the ante a bit. Uh, and the t-shirt says, failure is an option. <laughs> Just sort of my credo. Uh, failure is an option. Um, so the book, uh, this is the hardcover copy, but the paperback has this inside as well. In the first flap, if you have it, you'll see a picture of me uh, in a little automobile um, what this is, is in, this is 1974 in the Soviet Union in Leningrad. Uh, and they had these photo studios where they would pose little children like me with the latest in Soviet technology. So a fork, you know, or, or, or a phone, you know. Or, or, and so I got this latest car, which is sort of a Studebaker from the 50s, I think, but was very, very cool in Russia in 1974. Uh, the book is really about how I became a writer, uh, and people often ask me, how do you become a writer? Uh, where I live in New York, almost everyone is a writer uh, who's not running a hedge fund, or oh, sometimes doing it at the same time. Uh, and I think there's two ways to become a writer. Uh, uh, first thing, you have to be asthmatic. You have to have asthma. If you don't have asthma, it's much harder uh, to become a writer. Uh, during this, the, the book tour, it's been wonderful. People have been coming up to me with their uh, inhalers to sign. <laughs> I think it's terrific. Um, especially Seattle. I think a lot of asthma there. Um, and, and writers. Uh, so I grew up in a cold, damp city, Leningrad. And that was really perfect uh, because it was built over a swamp. So everyone had trouble breathing. Uh, and in 1974, there were no inhalers in the, in the Soviet Union. So if you had an asthma attack, the ambulance would come and drag you to the hospital. So that was quite an experience for a child uh, to see mortality up close every night. I think, again, very good for, for a writer. Um, the first thing that happened to us when we left the Soviet Union, we came to Vienna. That was the first stop. The Soviet Jews would come through Vienna and Rome and then end up in uh, Queens. Uh, but... I remember the first night we came there, I had my customary asthma attack, and the doctor gave me an inhaler, the first inhaler I'd ever seen, and that was the first night I could breathe. Um, so the metaphor of just leaving for the West and being able to breathe on your first night was something that I couldn't get until I started writing this memoir. So anyway, yes, so the first thing, you have to have asthma. Uh, the second thing is it helps to have a grandmother who writes, uh, and I was very lucky in this respect. My grandmother, Galia, was a journalist 
for a paper called Good Evening Leningrad, uh, which was far better than Good Morning Leningrad, its competitor, which was a trashy kind of TMZ type of paper, you know. I said that in L.A., and people were like, I write for TMZ. I'm glad we're in, in Beemore. Um, so one day when I was five years old, Grandma said to me, you know, hey, asthma boy, do you want to write a novel? Um, and already I was thinking like a, like a writer, and I said, how much does it pay? You know, which is what most writers uh, think. And uh, she said, I'll give you a piece of cheese for every page that you write. And I love this. They had this kind of yellow greenish plasticky Soviet cheese that you could poke an eye out with, but I loved it. It was my favorite thing in the world. Uh, so I said, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it. So I had to find a, a subject matter, and right outside of our window in Leningrad, we had the biggest statue of Lenin, possibly in most of Russia. He was huge, and, and he was very handsome. Uh, we called him the Latin Lenin, because he looked like he was about to rumba all the time. He had this kind of <laughs> dance with me kind of look. Um, and every morning I'd get up, and after my first asthma attack, I would, I would uh, hug Lenin around his pedestal. You know, I really loved him very much. So my first novel was called uh, Lenin and His Magical Goose. Uh, and in it, Lenin meets a, a talking goose, uh, from possibly from Armenia or Georgia, someplace very warm. Uh, and together they invade Finland and, and try to create a socialist revolution there. Um, the, I, as a kid, I was obsessed with the uh, Civil War of 1917. Uh, there's a picture of me in the inside flap of all the editions. Here I am wearing the traditional outfit that five-year-old uh, Russian boys wear, which is a sailor's outfit with tights. This alone is responsible for about seven years of psychoanalysis. Uh, uh, but I'm reading a very thick Talmudic-sized book, and that book is uh, uh, the history of the 1917 Civil War. So as you could tell, I was obsessed with it. Yeah, literary standards were pretty high for kids in the former Soviet Union. Um, so... Right, so we find out in the book, uh, after they invade Finland, Lenin and the talking goose, we find out that the goose is Menshevik, and Lenin, as we know, is Bolshevik. Uh, so a huge political fight breaks out, and Lenin eats the goose uh, for political reasons. Uh, but not before we learn that Lenin also suffers from, from asthma. So uh, I think I could update this as a YA novel with Putin and the magical goose now, I think. That would would work pretty well. Uh, but my grandmother loved it, and she paid me 100 pieces of cheese for a 100-page novel, uh, which I thought was ex exceptional. Uh, a fun fact, even today, Random House pays me in cheese, mostly. <laughs> so. Which I then sell out of the back of a van in, in Canarsie. So we emigrated to America, and I had to leave Lenin behind, and it was quite heartbreaking. Uh, my, my father said, no more Lenin now. Now we have to start loving Reagan. Um, I said, all right. <laughs> you know. And I had to learn English and also some Hebrew because I was sentenced to eight years of Hebrew school for a crime I didn't commit. But and 1980 was a very difficult time to be a Russian in America. Uh, you remember Ronald Reagan's Evil Empire speech and all the movies were Red Dawn and Red Gerbil and Red Hamster. Everything was red, you know. And I had to pretend to the kids in Hebrew school that I was actually born in East Berlin, not in Russia. So... Uh, you know things are bad when you have to convince Jewish kids you're actually a German. Uh, <laughs> but that's about where we were. Um, and we were really poor. I had one shirt and one pair of pants and a bunch of T-shirts that the parents of the kids in Hebrew school had donated. Uh, my toys were a pen, a Chewbacca action figure someone had given us that was missing half of his paw. Uh, from Russia, I had a fur coat and a fur hat made out of some woodland animal. Um, and the teachers would actually take me aside and say, you know, uh, you really need to get rid of your fur. Uh, kids will play with you more if you're, if you're furless. Uh, <laughs> true in adulthood as well, I found. And then two years after we left Russia, something truly incredible happened that almost changed our lives forever. And I'll read you a section of that. In 1981, an official letter arrives in our mailbox. Mr. S. Shitgart, you have already won $10 million. Sure, our last name is misspelled rather cruelly, but cardstock this thick does not lie, and the letter is from a major American publisher, to wit, the Publisher's Clearing House. I open the letter with shaking hands and... 
a check falls out, a real check, paid to the order of S. Schuttgart, $10 million and zero zero one hundred dollars Our lives are about to change. I run down the stairs into the courtyard of our apartment complex. Mama, Papa, we won, I shout. We millionaires, we are millionaires now. Calm down, my father says. Do you, do you want another asthma attack? But he's nervous and excited himself. Around the glowing surface of the orange dining table we've imported from Romania, we spread around the contents of this voluminous envelope. For two years, we've been good news citizens. We're accidentally watching X-rated movies on Main Street with titles like Emmanuel, The Joys of a Woman. Uh, getting jobs as engineers and clerk typists, learning to pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of American and for the something for which that it stands, unavoidable, uh, with money for all. Boy, my mother says, my God, as we look at the pictures on the envelope of a Mercedes flying off the deck of our yacht toward our new mansion with its Olympic-sized swimming pool. Oi, does it have to be a Mercedes? Pooh, they're Nazis. Don't worry, we can trade for a Cadillac. Look, there are palm trees around our new house. Maybe the house is in Florida. Florida won't be good for your asthma with all that humidity. But I want to live in Miami, Mommy. Maybe there aren't Hebrew schools in Miami. Everywhere in America, there are Hebrew schools. We sit down and using our collective 400-word English vocabulary, begin to unravel the many documents before us. It says here that, yes, we have already won the $10 million. There's no disputing that. But first, a panel of judges has to award the money to us. So first, we must fill out the so-called winner's form and to select five national magazines that will be sent to us free, or at least the first issue of each will be free, and then the Americans will likely send us the rest of the $10 million. Fair enough. First, we must acclimate to our new wealth, expand our literacy. I am proud of my papa's new car, a bulbous 1977 Chevrolet Malibu classic with only 7 million miles on the odometer. (laughs) But it's time to get acquainted with the finer autos. So I order car and motor, motor and driver, carburetor and driver, (laughs) muffler and owner. And for the last selection, something that maybe has my Star Wars monkey in it, Chewy Chewbacca, Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. We sign everywhere we need to, even places we don't need to. We sign the envelope. I walk solemnly to the mailbox and deposit our claim on the future. I don't speak much English or Hebrew, but I have learned to daven recently. Adonai Eloheinu, I pray to our new God, please help us get the $10 million dollars so that Mama and Papa will not fight so much, and there will be no razvod divorce between them. And let us live somewhere far away from Papa's wolfish relatives who cause all the trouble. And let them not yell at Mama when she sends the money. Papa says we don't have to her sisters and grandmother Galia in Leningrad, who has been dying for a very long time. Amen. That night, in my dreams, I walk into the Solomon Schechter School of Queens, a multimillionaire. And the girl, the pretty girl with the big teeth, who's always tanned from her Florida vacation, kisses me with those big teeth. The kids make fun of Jonah Himmelstein, the school's biggest loser, but I say, hey, he's my friend now. Here is $2. Buy us both the Carvel flying saucer cookie ice cream and keep the change, you gurnished, you nothing. (laughs) We find out the truth quickly and brutally. At their respective workplaces, my parents are told that the publisher's clearinghouse regularly sends out that you have already won $10 million letter and that these are routinely thrown into the trash by the savvy native-born. Depression settles over our non-millionaire shoulders. In Russia, the government was constantly telling us lies. The wheat harvest is up. Uzbek baby goats give milk at an all-time high. Soviet crickets learn to sing the Internationale in honor of Brezhnev's visit to a local hayfield. But we cannot imagine that they would lie to our faces like that here in America, the land of the this and the home of the that. And so we don't give up hope entirely. The judges are probably reading our application right now. Maybe I should write them a letter in my burgeoning English. Dear Publishers Clearing House, spring is here, the weather is warm and rainy, the birds come from the south to sing us songs. My mother's pianist fingers hurt very much from her typing job, and she has only one suit for work. Please send us 10 million now. 
We love you, <laughs> family Steingart. Meanwhile, car and parking and the other publishers' clearinghouse magazines are starting to pile up, taunting us with the many hot naked centerfolds of the new Porsche 911, the official sports coupe of Reagan-era excess. We reluctantly begin to cancel our subscriptions to all of them except for Asimov Science Fiction Magazine, a small square little number with the drawing of an exciting molting space creature on the cover hugging a boy in its claws. Our dreams of being instantly rich are finished, but we are moving up nonetheless. We are saving every kopeck that comes our way via my father's junior engineering job and my mother's typing. Here's our inventory. I have my pen, my broken Chewbacca monkey, and a bunch of donated t-shirts. My mother has her size 2 Harve Bernard business suit. My father has made a fishing rod out of a stick. Pounds of disgusting markdown farmer's cheese and kasha will feed us until we die of sadness. And if I, don't feed, if I don't clear my plate of that warm, soggy crap, the thunderclap of Papa's hand rings against my temple, my mama yelling, just don't hit his head. He's got to make money with his head someday. <laughs> Who are we? Parents, me biedny, we are poor folks. Why can't I have the Chewbacca with both paws? Parents, both paws. Ha ha, we are not Americans. <laughs> but you both have jobs now. Yes, but we have to buy a house. A house. The first step to Americanism. Who needs the two-pawed Chewbacca when we will soon have our own quasi-suburban home in Queens? But at lunchtime, the Hebrew school boys do like to take out their Lukes and Obi-Wans and Darth Vader's and Yoda's and set them on their desk to demonstrate just how much property falls within their purview. They talk in their already raspy Jewish voices. I threw out my old Yoda because the paint in his ears was falling off. And then I got two new Yodas and a Princess Leia just so Ham Solo could do her. <laughs> Me, amazed. Wow. I wrote Lenin and his magical goose because I wanted all that Soviet cheese, but I also wanted my grandmother to love me. I mean, that was the main reason I wrote it. And that was the easiest way to get her love. And so a terrible connection was forged in my mind that writing novels somehow equals love. Uh, to today, that's just not true. Uh, novelists are not beloved, except in some parts of Berkeley and Park Slope. There's no great love. Um, I gave a reading at a university a few years ago. I'm not even going to mention the University of Oklahoma by name. Uh, <laughs> but a student there raised her hand and said, excuse me, Mr. Shitgart, um, how do I know when a book's been, been fictionated? And I said, what? She said, you know, when, 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 when it's not true. And I said, well, it says a, a novel on it or stories. She said, well, thank you. I won't buy those from now on because I want things to be true. So I'm proud to have my first non-fictionated book. <laughs> or as someone in L.A. once asked me, so who directed your novel? So back to life after not winning the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes because I was the red gerbil, the second most hated boy in Hebrew school, I thought, what if I wrote a science fiction novel and showed it to the kids in school? Maybe they'll learn to like me. Some of these are still around. My parents were kind enough to save them. Uh, hundreds of pages long, a uh, little child scrawl. Uh, this one's called Invasion from Outer Space. Uh, let's take a look inside. Uh, Chapter one, something is wrong. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to say child services in Russian, so this was <laughs> as close as I got to a cry for help. Uh, but then when I was about 11 years old, a momentous thing happened in the guise of a substitute teacher called Miss S. And I'll read you a section. On one of her first days on the job, Miss S. asked us to bring in our favorite items in the world and to explain why they make us who we are. I bring in my latest toy, a dysfunctional Apollo rocket, whose capsule pops off with the press of a lever, and explain that I have even written my own novel. This passes largely unremarked as the latest batch of Star Wars X-Wing fighters and My Little Ponies are passed around. Finally, Miss S., holds up a sneaker and explains that her favorite activity in the world is jogging. P.U., a boy cries out, pointing at the sneaker and holding his nose, and everyone except me laughs their wicked child laugh. I am shocked. Here is a young, kind, pretty teacher, and the teacher and the children are intimating that her feet smell. 
Only me and my 200-pound Leningrad fur coat are allowed to smell around here. I look to Miss S, so worried that she'll burst out crying, but instead she laughs and goes on about how running makes her feel good. After we have all finished explaining who we are, Miss S calls me over to her desk. You really wrote a novel, she asks? Yes, I say. It's called The Challenge. May I read it? Yes, you may read it. I will brink it. And brink it I do. With the worried admonition, please don't lose Miss S, okay? And then it happens. At the end of the English period, when a book about a mouse who has learned how to fly in an airplane has been thoroughly dissected, Miss S announces, and now Gary will read from his novel. His what? Oh, but it doesn't matter, because I'm standing there holding my composition notebook straight from the Square Deal Notebook people of Dayton, Ohio, zip code 45463. And looking out at me are the boys beneath their little flying saucer yarmulkes and the girls with their sweet aromatic bangs, their blouses studded with stars. And there's Miss S., who I'm already terribly in love with, but who I recently learned has a fiancé. Not sure what that means. Can't be good. (laughs) but whose bright American face is not just encouraging me, but priding me on. Am I scared? No, I'm eager, eager to begin my new life. Introduction, I say. Uh, The mysterious race. Before the age of dinosaurs, there was human life on Earth. They looked just like men of today, but they were a lot more intelligent than men of today. Slowly, Miss S says. Read slowly, Gary. Let us enjoy the words. I breathe that in. Miss S wants to enjoy my words. So I continue a lot slower. They built all kinds of spaceships and other wonders, but at that time the Earth circled the moon because the moon was bigger than the Earth. One day a gigantic comet came and blew up moon to the size it is today. As I'm reading it, despite the many errors, I'm hearing a different language come out of my mouth. I do full justice to the many misspellings, the earth circled the moon, and the Russian accent is still thick, but I am speaking in what is more or less comprehensible English. And as I'm speaking, along with my strange new English voice, I'm also hearing something entirely foreign to the squealing and shouting that constitutes the background noise of Hebrew school. Silence! The children are silent. They're listening to my every word, and they will listen to the story for the next five weeks as well, because Miss S will designate the end of every English period as Gary novel time, and they will shout out throughout the English period, when will Gary Vito ready? Uh, The school is close to Long Island. Uh, And I will sit there in my chair, oblivious to all but Miss S's smile, excused from following the discussion of the mouse who learned how to fly in an airplane, so that I may go over the words I will soon read to my adoring audience. And God bless these kids for giving me a chance. May their God bless them, everyone. Well, thank you. (laughs) I'm not not asking for applause. That was not the, the applause silence, but... But I love it anyway. Uh, Cheese is also welcome. Uh, So in the meantime, uh, because most Soviet immigrants are quite conservative, I've subscribed to another little magazine called The National Review. Uh, The William F. Buckley Jr. is the editor. Uh, Margaret Thatcher is on the cover, on every cover. Uh, And then I'm sent a thick card featuring an American eagle sitting upon two rifles. Gary Steingart, age 11, is being welcomed into the National Rifle Association. Can't start too soon, I think. My republicanism flourished even as I left Eastern Queens and ended up at Stuyvesant High School, the holding pen for multinational math and science nerds in Manhattan. And then one day, my political allegiances underwent a huge change. And this is how it happened. On election day 1988, I come to the Marriott Marquis Ballroom thinking, this is the day, the day I will finally get laid. I volunteered for George Bush Sr.'s scorched-earth election presidential campaign against the hapless Michael Dukakis, laughing along with Bush's hysterical Willie Horton commercials and all they imply about the liberal Massachusetts Greek. Compassion, after all, is a virtue only rich Americans can afford. Tolerance the purview of slick Manhattanites who already have everything I want. I'm invited to attend what is sure to be a Republican victory party at the Marriott Marquis, the ugly slab of a building near Times Square. The invitation to the party features a scornful cartoon of the big-eared Dukakis sticking his head out of an M1 Abrams tank, the most unfortunate photo op of that campaign. And I expect an evening of arrogant crowing. (laughs) 
of being pressed to the bosom of my fellow conservatives while dancing a Protestant horror over the grave of American liberalism. Yes, tonight is a special night. It's the night I'm to meet a Republican girl from a clean white home. Her name will be Jane. Jane Carruthers, let's say. Hi, Jane. I'm Gary Steingart from Little Neck, Queens. Uh, my family owns a Dutch colonial worth 280,000 U.S. dollars. Uh, I'm the brains behind a Commodore 64 program called the Family Real Estate Transaction Calculator. Uh, I go to Stuyvesant High School where my grades aren't so great, but I hope to get into the Honors College at the University of Michigan. Uh, I guess tonight is going to be curtains for the governor of Taxachusetts. He, 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 he. <laughs> I enter the ballroom, a dark, gap-toothed immigrant wearing sweat socks and brown penny loafers and my special and only suit, a highly flammable polyester number. (laughs) I navigate the room filled with sparkling Anglos clutching single malts without a word said in my direction, without a pair of happy blue eyes reflecting the gray sheen of the crisp nylon tie I bought for $2 from a Broadway vendor. As George Herbert Walker Bush racks up state after state on the big screen above us, as cheers and laughter circulate around the massively hideous ballroom, I stand alone in a corner, biting down on my plastic cup filled with ginger ale and swatting away the colorful balloons that seem to have an affinity for my static-inducing polyester. (laughs) Until a pair of teenage blonde lovelies, the girls I've been waiting for all my life, finally approach with needy smiles on their faces, one of them beckoning me to come hither with her hand. I'm so excited. I somehow fail to see myself for what I am, a short teenage boy born to a failing country, trapped inside a shiny gunmetal jacket, carrying about a mop of the darkest hair in the room, darker even than Michael Dukakis's Hellenic dew. Which one will be my Jane? Which one will trace the W of my weak chin with her pewter fingers? Which one will take me on her boat and introduce me to the millionaire and his wife? You know something, Daddy? Gary survived communist Russia just so he could join the GOP. (laughs) I think that's very courageous, son. Would you like to throw the old pigskin around with me and Jack Kemp after cocktails? (laughs) Just leave your topsiders in the mudroom. Hey, yeah, you, you, one of the lovelies says. Me, debonair, unconcerned. Me? Me? Yeah, you. I'll have a rum and coke, just a splash of ice and a lime. Mandy, no ice, right? She'll have a Diet Coke, lime, no ice. I have been mistaken for the waiter. And the next day, I'm a Democrat. (laughs) I could have been in the tea party by now, instead of going to Oberlin. (laughs) Just never mistake people for waiters is the lesson. So for the very last section, I thought I'd backtrack to our very first days in America. Um, Coming to this country in 79 from the former Soviet Union is not like coming here from Shanghai, Mumbai, or Dubai today where everyone has an iPhone and an iPad and an i-everything. It really was crossing not just eight time zones but being teleported to a different and much better planet. Uh, It was pure science fiction. It felt like some kind of superhuman, advanced civilization. The first Corvette I ever saw, I thought it was an airplane with the wings folded in. There was a lot of pain involved, the pain of losing language and culture and loved ones, but also something very beautiful about it, too, I think. And here's a little dispatch from that universe, the moment of arrival. The first momentous thing that happens to me in Kew Gardens, Queens, is that I fall in love with cereal boxes. We are too poor to afford toys at this point, but we do have to eat. Cereal is food. Well, sort of. It tastes grainy, easy, and light with a hint of false fruitiness. It tastes kind of the way America feels. I'm obsessed with the fact that many cereal, many cereal boxes come with prizes inside, which seems to me an unprecedented miracle, something for nothing. My favorite comes in a box of a cereal called Honeycomb a box featuring a healthy, freckled white kid whom I begin to accept as an important role model, flying through the sky on a bicycle. Many years later, I learn he's probably popping a wheelie, as they say. What you get inside each box of honeycombs are small license plates to be tied to the rear of your bicycle. The license plates are much smaller than the real thing, but they have a nice metallic heft to them. I keep getting Michigan, a very small plate, white letters on a black base. I trace the word with my fingers. I speak it aloud, getting most of the sounds wrong. Michigan. When I have a thick stack of plates, I hold them in my hands and spread them out like playing cards. 
Each plate is terribly unique. Some states present themselves as America's dairy land. Others wish to live free or die. One I need now in a very serious way is to get an actual bike. In America, the distance between wanting something and having it delivered right into your living room is not terribly great. I want a bike, so some rich American neighbor, they're all unspeakably rich, gives me a bike, a rusted red monstrosity with the spokes coming dangerously undone. I tie the license plate to the bicycle, and I spend most of my day wondering which plate to use, citrus sunny Florida or snowy Vermont. This is what America is about, choice. I don't have much choice in pals, but there's a one-eyed girl in our building complex whom I've sort of befriended. She's tiny and scrappy and poor, just like us. We're suspicious of each other at first, but I'm an immigrant and she has one eye, so we're even. (laughs) The girl rides around on a half-broken bike just like mine, and she keeps falling and scraping herself. Rumor is that's how she lost her eye. And bawling whenever her palms get bloodied, her blonde head raised up to the sky. One day, she sees me riding my banged-up bicycle with the honeycomb license plate clanging behind me, and she screams, Michigan! Hey, Michigan! And I ride ahead, smiling and tooting my bike horn, so proud of the English letters that are attached somewhere below my ass. It's Michigan, she cries, with its bluish-black license plate, the color of my friend's remaining eye. Michigan, with its delicious American name, Michigan. How lucky one must be to live there. Thank you. I just did a reading in Michigan. Uh, It was nice. Uh, They were very nice. The Ann Arborites were very nice. Uh, yeah. uh, okay, so now the exciting part begins. Uh, oh, okay. Congratulations. Where do you have your crab cake? Hold on a second. Oh. Well, that's a great question. Uh, first, let me present you with what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Any other is an option? I was going to ask you the question. Where do I have crab cake? No, oh, it's got to You can have it. <laughs> uh, where did I eat the crab cake uh, at Moe's uh, uh, my thinking was uh, Anthony Bourdain uh, came to Baltimore and he took uh, do you remember a show called The Wire you may have heard of it yeah it, 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 once or twice you watched it yeah it's heard of it yeah it's um, yeah not that it defined Baltimore, but um, at one point, Bourdain came and took uh, Snoop from the wire uh, to... Uh, no, no, Snoop took Bourdain to Moe's. So, and, and I did a segment with Anthony Bourdain where he, uh, he asked me to take him around Brighton Beach uh, to get plastered together. Uh, we drank vodka, yes. That's right. There was a giant bucket of vodka with maybe an ice cube in it. And Bourdain and I took turns swilling from it like, like frat boys. Yes. yes. Often in Russia, uh, when, when you visit, when I visit a friend, I'll bring my own bottle to drink. Uh, and he'll have his. And we'll end up wrestling together uh, by the end of the evening. So anyway, but it was a very nice, it's a good question. It was a very moist crab cake. Where else should I go? What's the, what's the neat? Yeah. I, Thales, yes, yes. The Thales, yes, that came up in my list of Lexington Market. Oh, God damn it. I wish the, the night was longer. Uh, okay, I have to fly out tomorrow, but I'll be back for this, uh, for that crab cake. Oysters, too. Yeah, I had some clams. Mm. Anyway, you eat well here is what I'm saying. Crab season. Mm. Do I go back to Russia? I go back almost every year. I, I enjoy suffering uh, quite a bit. Um, uh, my parents... Uh, well, I mean, my books are translated into Russian except for this one, thankfully. Uh, and uh, the reviews have always been great. Uh, Balding Traitor Betrays Motherland was the review for the last book. Um, so, uh, yeah, I do go back, and, and in, in this book, I take my parents back to Russia for the first time in 30 years, because they, they haven't been back since we left. So for them, this was a big, a big event, and uh, that's the last chapter of this book. And it was a very dramatic uh, sort of homecoming, because I keep coming back, 
uh, but they go to nicer places, you know, Paris, um, and are always shocked that I have such an interest. But I think the reason I come back to Russia so often is because I want to understand them better. And in some ways, this book, the main purpose of this book was to figure out more of, about who they are. And I maybe, I don't know how well I did that, but that was certainly what I was trying to do. Yeah. I have two questions. Sure. Yeah. Could you speak up so we can hear you? I have a question. First of all, would you like your son to speak Russian yeah. or be absorbed and inherit your Russian culture? Yeah. Or you're not conflicted at all? You want him to like, be assimilated 100%? Uh-huh. You understand? Yeah, I understand that question, yeah. And second is the quick. Um, how does it sound a little failure in Russia? Okay, good. Two questions. I guess I'll handle the first one first. The uh, second one first. Yeah. Uh, so what happened was failure was not, little failure was not what my mother called me in Russian. It was failure So she took the, Amer- the English word for failure and added a diminutive to it. She said it in English. She said it in English with a d- Russian diminutive. Failure uh, She does that a lot. She takes, you know, you know how Russians will often say, use English verbs, you, instead of yesterday I went shopping, yesterday ya shopola, you know, things like that, which I think are, a lot of people do in many, in many cultures. Um, the, the, the way that, word was coined was that after, I, so I went to Oberlin, a small hippie college uh, in Ohio, and uh, you know, my parents wanted me, as all good immigrant parents wanted me to have a, a real profession. She kept asking me, well, who are you by profession, with my, you know, degree from Oberlin in Beatles studies or whatever it was. Uh, and so, you know, um, after college, she wanted me to go to law school. She said, right, you're, you're not smart enough for med school. Let's concentrate on law school. Um, and so, I lived at the, uh, New York's Lower East Side, which is now, like all downtown Manhattan, very trendy. But back then, this was still ungentrified. Um, I was one of the few non-Dominican uh, sort of people there. They called us Los Blanquitos, the little white guys. Um, so, and I lived in a six-floor walk-up, uh, which had a slanted floor. Uh, so you woke up, you went to bed here, and you woke up here, sort of. You, you rolled down slowly throughout the night. Uh, and my roommate was this three-foot-tall cockroach, you know, who spoke English and Russian to get to your first question. He was, Gregor was his name. Um, and, you know, and so my mother walks in and sees this living space. And here, it's been a hundred grand on Oberlin, you know. And she said, failure, chica. And, and that became, that name sort of stuck. It wasn't, it was English with a Russian twist. Yeah. Uh, to the question of how to ra- raising the kid with what language, it's a very interesting question. My wife is of, um, she was born in America, but is of Korean descent. So that ups the ante. Now there's Russian and Korean in the mix. Uh, so in the end, there'll probably be Mandarin in, in third grade, which is what kids in New York schools learn. Um, I do, I read to him in Russian all the time because I think, and you should see this. You know, so I'll read something in, in English. Uh, Good Night Moon is a favorite one. It puts all of us to sleep. It's lovely. But, you know, you, you read him a, a, a little nonsense poem in Russian. Рысь речит на берегу, поймать рыбку не могу, хоть она невдалеке, не достать ее в реке. And his eyes light up. He's like, holy crap, what's happening here? It's like, uh, you know, a different, uh, the voice of a different person. And, 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 he, get, and he gets excited and uh, he, he starts, he's, he's one year old, but he, you know, he starts, <laughs> he starts talking, trying to talk back and trying to trill the R. Um, so I think it's very helpful. Now, what happens in the end? I don't know. You know, um, one can push a child toward a language or toward a certain background, but it doesn't always stick, you know, so... I think at some point we'll present him with all the options and see what he likes. Maybe he'll be a huge Korean expert. That would be nice. Um, but in the end, it'll be up to him. But, you know, the schools in New York are insane. Uh, the preschools, the hottest school now is in 92nd Street Y. And I, I was, gave a reading there, and I said, because I'm giving a reading here, can, can my kid get in? And they said, how old is he? I said, you know, he's three weeks. And they said, no, you should have applied prenatally. Uh, <laughs> too late. He's finished. He'll never get into... And these schools have these things called HYPMS, uh, Harvard, Yale, MIT, Stanford, and something. Princeton. Princeton. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, MIT, Stanford. Right? And so, at a, so by kindergarten, they know, they'll say, our, our HYPMS number is 38%. So 38% of the children entering the school will go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, MIT. These poor kids! What chance do they have for a happy life? Uh, I thought we had it bad growing up, you know, but it's much worse. Um, where do your parents live now? 
where they, they live in the furthest reaches of Queens, uh, where Queens and Long Island meet. Um, I think uh, near Great Neck is the Great Neck is the wealthy suburb next to them, and they're in the more middle class suburb. Do you still have family in Brighton Beach? We never lived in Brighton Beach. Uh, we went straight to Queens, um, and we lived. Uh, we settled a part of Queens called uh, Rodrigo Park in Forest Hills, is where my grandmother lived. Um, and that's now run, uh, overrun with Bukharan Jews, Jews from uh, Tashkent and Samarkand and Bukhara, Bukhara um, purveyors of great kebabs. Um, so we never had an, an encounter with that part, what's called Little Odessa, and really does have a lot of people from Odessa in it because it has a very Odessa-like climate. Um, so, but it's weird. That's where I took Bourdain was to Brighton Beach, and it feels, it doesn't feel like anything else in the world. It feels like sort of Russia frozen in amber in 1979, because when you go to Russia today, it doesn't feel like that at all. And that happens, I think, to a lot of immigrant enclaves, is that they're stuck in the moment when that immigration happened, and they don't advance that much. Um, so Brighton Beach is like almost a theme park of, of, of 1979 to me. You know? Yeah, wondered about my own family, and I don't know if, because um, you're, you're obviously a very much younger generation, but if you had any comment or insight based on your own immigrant experiences, like my grandparents' generation came over in like the 19-teens, there was one aunt who would talk, you know, out of the nine kids in that family, and similar on my father's side too, like it would be one aunt who would talk about it. And the rest of them really didn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. They were mm -hmm. Jewish. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to talk about the, the old country in the past, right? The yeah, country, yeah. They didn't want to talk about yeah. what it was like when they got here. Yeah. Naturally, we had a lot of questions, and it was like, no, oh, you're not interested. You know, yeah. you say something to brush it aside. Yeah. Very interesting, that phenomenon, I think. It really comes in waves, I think. It comes and goes in waves, that interest in the past and, and in one's background. You know, So when I came, being Russian, as I've said, was the worst thing. So I, you know... Hit, I, I remember practicing losing my English accent in front of the mirror for days, you know, and just losing my Russian accent, rather. And, and uh, the big singer then was Neil Diamond. So I would do, they come into America. <laughs> you know, I would do that until I finally got it. Um, but then when I got to Oberlin, being a white, male, heterosexual American was the worst thing you could be. Everybody was trying to be something different. So I was like, holy crap, I better bring all this Russianness back. I started writing about Russia. I was wearing the whole Cossack thing with the bullets. You know, I mean, you know, it was just full-on Russian. And I think I find that in Americans that, that that happens among generations as well. You know, that there's a first, we have to assimilate at all costs and get rid of everything that marks us as being immigrants. And then the second, you know, down the line, it's, holy crap, I'm sick of just being another American. Let's figure out what part of Ireland we're from or Italy, et cetera, et cetera. So that's when the pilgrimages begin back to Salerno or, 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 or to Ukraine, um, the novel Everything is Illuminated, a wonderful novel, obviously is about that as well. So this endless thirst for reconnecting with the past, um, which I also find in other immigrant societies. You know, Brazil, for example, is full of immigrants from places like Japan and Italy, and etc. And people also are starting to get in touch with their roots. Uh, so first repulsion, then attraction, and then maybe more... Uh, yeah. Do you ever write in Russian or feel an urge to? Um, Grammatically, it wouldn't be that great. It, would, it wouldn't look nice uh, in, in Russian. Um, I do help, uh, uh, I do uh, check the Russian translations of my books to make sure that the American idioms are correct and other parts are correct. Uh, I used to have this very, ooh, I think she was, I think she was in her hundreds, this very elderly uh, translator who was very old school, priggish, and whenever I had the name of the act of copulation or any other genital or something involved, she would write the first letter and then dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so I would spend months filling in those dots, you know. And Putin just passed a law banning the use of those things, so uh, there we go. Um, but still, you know, Russian exists. Uh, I go back every year, uh, and, and my nightmares are in Russian to this day. You know, whenever something horrible is happening in a dream, uh, I switch to Russian. Um, and, you know, we grew up very poor, and whenever... I'm getting money out of an ATM. I'm counting it in Russian. So I think some of that old stuff continues. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you would have become a writer had you stayed in Russia? Oh, no. If I stayed in Russia, I think I'd be an oligarch by now. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have been so much better. I mean, I love this. This is great. But I would have been an amazing oligarch. Uh, 
living in Switzerland with a bunch of oh god, good good times. Um, I'd be the yeah, right. I'd own my own Lenin, B Y O L, as they say. Yeah. Dad, when you saw Emmanuel. Mm. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so we went into Main Street. We had no idea what ratings were. I was probably six or seven. No, I, I was seven. We came, I was seven. So seven, probably seven. It was our first year. We lived in Kew Gardens, Queens, and there was Main Street. And back then, at least in this part of New York, the, the movies were all jumbled together. So an X-rated film would be next to, you know, Bambi or whatever. Um, so we thought Emmanuel, uh, it's a nice, it's, my, it's a French production. And my father was excited about all the French culture we were going to get, you know. We were probably going to hear about Voltaire in that movie, you know. Um, and then we got there, and most of it was said in a in a girl's boarding house in Macau, in Hong Kong, I think. Uh, and so most of the movie was spent with my father covering my eyes and me trying to pry off, you know, his hand. Because that was the last I would see of a certain something for many, many decades. Uh, but No, he didn't. He was like, all right. And he was so excited. And we, I remember we went home, and he started talking to my mom. He's like, we got to see this. You know, they, they did it like this. They did it like that. It was amazing. It was, what a... It was one of the most amazing things. That and the honeycomb cereal were two very Im- important things about America. Uh, somebody here. How do you read Mr. Putin? Well, he's a jackass. Um, <laughs> but this is, you know, that's the thing about Russia, is that people expect things to all of a sudden change and become, you know, okay, we got rid of communism, so now something great's going to happen. Uh, nothing great's going to happen. Uh, there's a restaurant in St. Petersburg called 1913. And I asked the owner, I said, why 1913? She said, that was the only good year in Russian history. <laughs> And that makes sense to me. You know, that, that, that's about right. So uh, this turn to, national, to the extreme nationalism and homophobia and racism and the whole nine yards uh, was, I think, in many ways expected. Um, the question of how long it will last depends almost entirely on how long uh, gas and oil prices are maintained at a certain level. If they fall below, I think he'll be, I think he'll be executed in the worst way possible. <laughs> Someone else had their hand up, yeah. Oh, yes, I did write an alternate version of the Torah. So part of my campaign to be liked uh, in, in Hebrew school involved uh, not just this, but a version of the Torah which I called the Genorah, uh, because my nickname was Gary Gnu, in which you know, Exodus became Sexodus and stuff like that. Um, and Brooke Shieldowitz was the progenitor of the Jewish people, not Sarah. Uh, Brooke Shieldowitz. And that was how I made my first American friends. It became very subversive. It was real Samizdat type stuff. It was, I, I typed it on a scroll a real Torah scroll. And I, we, we would sneak into the bathroom along with uh, pictures of Brooke Shieldowitz uh, and the boys would sort of look over that. And, and, and I went from being this sort of Russian horrible, you know, horrible commie to just a, a crazy kid, you know. Um, and that was a step up. Uh, th- there were just a, two more other Russians in, 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 in the, at Hebrew school. By the way, that Hebrew school, Solomon Chester, was very nice. They invited me to come over. Um, and after this book, they've actually hired someone to try to deal with Russian immigrants in a, in a nice way. Um, and to their credit. And, and now there's tons of Russian immigrants there. Um, so, you know, progress. Um, but this was, the rabbis were, you know, were pretty stringent. Uh, and some of the Russian kids would sneak in and we'd have kalbasa, which we loved, which is, of course, pork. Uh, and, and the rabbis would scream, it's because of you that the Holocaust happened. <laughs> And as kids, we were like, holy crap, I can't believe I did this to our people, you know, because what did we know? What did we know, you know? Um, so the Gonorrah was, was important. And, and the, when the yearbook came out, for, and every kid got a song to sort of symbolize who they were, and all the Russian kids got back in the USSR or whatever, some Russian song, because that's the, their whole identity. They were never able to escape it. Uh, and I got, uh, they're coming to take me away, haha. <laughs> Which, again, was a step up. Um, yeah. yes. Have you heard from uh, folks after a little failure, people you grew up with, people who were mentioned in the book or alluded to with their own stories? Um, yeah, yesterday I gave a reading in New York, and one of my uh, old college roommates, whom I've completely lost touch with, came up uh, to say hi. Um, yeah, a lot of people have been in touch, but also a lot of people have, I, I got in touch with before writing the book because I needed to check my version of events with them. Uh, I did a lot of research for this book, about a year's worth. 
um, especially around Oberlin and, and some parts of Stuyvesant, because as per the book, there were a lot of drugs involved. And it was very hard to remember anything. Um, so I literally had entire groups of people who would sort of... So I would say, I wanted to write this whole chapter because I thought we had kidnapped... We had hijacked the number two train uh, on acid and, and taken it to the Bronx. And, and these people were like, no, that's a movie. Uh, <laughs> so I was so glad that I did the requisite fact-checking. And some of this was published in The New Yorker, and they have an insane fact-checking process, so... Um, a lot of it. So, but I have been in touch. It's it's interesting, you know. Um, my best friend in Hebrew school was named Jonathan. There's a whole chapter devoted to him, and he he saved my life in a way. He became my first friend, my first real American friend, and um, it was a template for how to interact with other people. Uh, this is when my English was becoming better, um, and that's something that I think you know. And I completely lost touch with him. Uh, he went to Yale, became a doctor. I went to Oberlin, became whatever. Uh, and so we can completely lost touch. And then his father died, whom I loved. He was sort of like a second father to me. And my father was sort of like a second father to Jonathan. Uh, and he just contacted me out of the blue, or, or his wife contacted him. Um, and then we re- rekindled our friendship, and now we're best friends again. Um, so it was a very... You know, I always say, you know, writing a memoir shouldn't be cathartic, that that's something you should find in, you know, whatever therapy or paintball or whatever it is that one does. Uh, but that, that aspect of it was very nice, being in touch with him again. Yeah, in the back. As a, as a Stuyvesant graduate, I, I enjoyed that little <laughs> failure, but I also found the, um, the, the chapter about Stuyvesant fairly, fairly cursory. And, and I, I wonder, as someone who's not, didn't become a scientist okay. or go into medicine, how, how did you find the Stuyvesant experience <laughs> as its effect on your there, there wasn't any. Yeah, I mean, it was because it was, it was, you know, as you, as you mentioned, it is math and science, obviously. Um, and and I don't know anything about math or science. Uh, my father taught me out of a Soviet textbook, which was nice of him, but he'd also slap me when I got things wrong, which didn't exactly encourage a love of of, of uh, you know calculus. Um, so. Now, it's interesting. Now, the book I'm writing now has to deal a lot with the financial industry, with hedge funds, uh, which means I have to actually look at these things and read books about it. Um, and now I wish that I hadn't been all that stoned at, in Stuyvesant and, and, and had developed some kind of proficiency for math and science. But the main thing that happened to me, I think, at Stuyvesant was not anything about academics, because clearly it had very little impact. There were also Frank McCourt, was the writer teacher there the year I showed up is the year he left so there was nobody there was nobody good to teach you know to teach creative writing so that was completely that went by the wayside I didn't write anything good when I was at at Stuyvesant Um, but the main thing that happened to me at Stuyvesant was that I fell in love with Manhattan Uh, I grew up when I grew up in eastern Queens uh, there's a cluster of skyscrapers in um, on Queens Boulevard there's maybe four of them and I always thought that was Manhattan. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought, holy crap, those, that must be it. Uh, and um, when I f- saw Manhattan, I, I just couldn't believe it. First, we were incredibly scared of it. This was 1989, uh, 88, no, sorry, 87. See, my math isn't even good in that. I can't even tell years apart. Uh, I showed up in 87, and uh, this is when we all had muggers' wallets. So uh, you had your money in your sock, and then you had a wallet with five bucks in it. I always wondered why the muggers didn't ask, like, what's in your sock, you know? <laughs> to think that would be... Oh. Anyway, we were so scared that my first day at Stuyvesant, my mother hid behind a tree uh, outside the building, which is described in the book, and, uh, you know, try, and she wanted to walk me to the subway behind me to make sure that I would make it one block uh, to the L train. And back then, things were so scary for Stuyvesant kids. There was a school called Washington Irving, which would beat us up. Uh, that the uh, and this is how much New York uh, the police department loves us. There was a special safe train, an L train with cops with rifles, you know, guarding these, guarding us nerds as we walk down into the into the train. All right, not rifles, but you know, the full Monty. Uh, and so that was uh, uh, now, of course, the new Stuyvesant is this building that's attached sort of to Goldman Sachs. So that makes perfect sense. Why they're all going to end up there anyway? So why not just? Uh, do that. But for me, it was falling in love with Manhattan. Walking through Manhattan was interesting because it was the first time, you know, I was always so conscious of myself because I was 
first I was the Russian kid, then I had the accent, then I was the crazy kid. Manhattan was wonderful because there were three million people walking around you. It didn't matter who you were. That anonymity was so amazing. And also being in a school with 3,000 other nerds, you know, was also amazing. It didn't matter. You weren't even a person. You were just a number. You were your, you were, you were your average. Mine was 88.694. Um, <laughs> and all you were was somebody trying to Further, usually their parents' immigrant dreams. I was the um, a commencement speaker at Stuyvesant a couple of years ago, and I looked out at the audience. It really was about 90% Asian at this point. Um, there were just a few kids who weren't, most of them from, from Odessa. Uh, and to me, that was also the first multicultural experience I ever had, because before that, it was all Hebrew school. It was all Russian Jews or American Jews. And this was the first time I got to meet somebody who was from a different planet, and it was wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Just first, I'd like to make, make a comment. I've read the book, and the quote that was repeated before of a reviewer who said he saw that Latin and the crime, which was my experience. Well, thank you. I also, as I'm listening to you, appreciate how wonderful this book is, because I suffered with you. Not, not with you, but <laughs> why is he doing this to me? I know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, my God. <laughs> By the way, this happens everywhere I go. I mean... <laughs> yes. All boys. Oh, boy. Yeah. And the other thing that sounded different from my experience, we had split sessions. Uh-huh. First two years, freshman and sophomore year, you went in the afternoons. Second two years, you went... Wow. wow. And it sounded like... It's crazy. I don't know how they fit all the kids in that you all were there. It's a tiny building. I live a couple of blocks away from it. It was crazy. It, it felt like a tenement. You know, it felt like a turn of the century. They call it sleep or something. It was, you know, 50 kids crammed into a room a third of this size, all of them pimpled and sweating and trying to master, you know, AP calc. It was not a well-smelling place. No. <laughs> you know New York, nothing, everything lasts three minutes and then it's gone. Yeah, uh, yeah. no, I mean, uh, we had girls, but that didn't really help me very much. Um, I finally did fall in love by senior year, and as you read in the book, I followed her. That's why I went to Oberlin instead of, an, uh, you know, another school. Uh, and she dumped me the first day we were there. She said, you know, just let's not hold hands anymore. Uh, it's another failure on my part. Uh, yeah, yeah. Someone had their hand up. Oh, yes. What city was I born in Russia? I was born in, in Leningrad. Yeah, in the Otto Rodom, uh, which is the best Rodom uh, birthing house uh, in, all of, in all of Leningrad. It has beautiful Art Deco designs uh, outside of, and on Vasilevsky Ostrov. Well, as I was mentioning earlier, I go back every year to, to, keep, up the, to keep up the Russian. Usually I go to Leningrad. Sometimes I'm, I'm sent to Moscow. Interestingly enough, I think I, I think I'm not going to get a visa anymore from Russia. I think they finally had enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'm not a citizen of Russia anymore. Yeah, no, USA. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Two, two questions. Sure. Uh, first question is why do so many people here, the Russian immigrants that I've met here, uh, or the parents' generation, uh, are very uh, Dismissive and dislike the current president. Oh, <laughs> question. Yeah. that's a tough Second question. question is, with all the great Russian intelligentsia and this great influx and grin with Google, how come Russians can't understand baseball? <laughs> <laughs> that question I can't even begin to explain. I don't understand baseball at all. Right. What the hell is this thing? Why would you run around? In a circle like that, instead of trying to kick a ball into a goal, which makes perfect sense. It's unbelievable. I was just, I, did, I had a reading in Kansas City, um, and, and it was the day, it was, well, sorry, sorry. Well, no, there's, a, there's a good, no, but the, the scary thing is that they destroyed my life, that, that, when, because of the rain delay, I was supposed to read to 1,200 people, and I ended up in a, in a closet with, with three people. So my hatred of the royals is even more worse than yours at this point. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Screw them. Um, now the Russian intelligence. I don't. The, the the Obama hatred. Well, first of all, it is it is overwhelmingly, I would say, a Republican leaning. Not a hundred percent, but more so among the older generation and and quite a bit in the younger generation as well. This makes some sense. You look at Cuban Americans, for example, and other people that have survived communist societies. The natural reaction is obviously to go to, to, toward, toward the right. But there is a bit of, you know, it's, there's a lot of hyperbole that I could never understand. I mean, I've had Thanksgivings where people, uh, you know, at the table, would, they would say, you, liberal, uh, soon, soon you will see, when Obama was elected, they said, soon you will see there will be lines for bread. There will be shortages of everything under his socialism. Well, that didn't happen. In fact, if you live in Manhattan, the inequality has increased. The richer have gotten far richer under the Obama administration than they ever have before. Um, there's, it's very hard to understand why. Um, but I think when I talk to Russians of my age, it's, it's pretty evenly mixed between sort of Democrats and Republicans, which is, I think, the norm that all... So it's a question of generations. I'll follow Yeah. And so all of our life is reflected of how horrible it was to live under Tsarist rule and so on, passing down. The Jews that came from Russia don't have any of that history. I mean, they're alive. They didn't die during the Holocaust. It seemed to me that there should be a little more understanding. Well, you'd think that, but, you know, it doesn't quite work that way. When I wrote this book, when I started writing this book, and I was... 39 when I started writing this book. And I think that was in... Sometimes people ask me, why, why were you so young when you started writing? And I always say, you know, 39 in Russian years is, is 67 in, in American years. I, I feel old. I feel like I've been through a lot. Um, the first memories that my father had of his life was his own father being shot, killed outside of Leningrad when the Germans took it under siege. His second memory was hiding under a train when the Luftwaffe was strafing the train. His third memory was his best friend dying at age three of malnutrition. His fourth memory was being chased by rats because the rats were so big they were eating. The children were so thin, the rats were so big they were eating children. The fifth memory was hiding under a table for years, crying because he had lost his father, uh, um, trying to go back in time, invent a time machine so that he could hit, kill Hitler before his own father would die because he was saddled with this horrific stepfather. And, and hence, all of the stuff that happened to him, that happened to me, everything began to un, un, unfurl at that moment. Um, in some ways, you know, when you think about it, Hitler and Stalin were their, were their babysitters, in a sense. These, these horrific presences were overshadowed everything. Even if they, you know... It was... And, and that really changed the way I, I began to approach this book, because when I was in my 20s and 30s, I had a lot of animosity toward my parents. You know, the little failure and all this stuff wasn't exactly... Uh, I, I thought, why can't you be like Oberlin parents, always hugging me and giving me a trust fund? You know, uh, <laughs> how hard is that? Uh, uh, but talking to my parents, and I knew all this stuff, but we never really talked about it, but talking to them about it and going back to Russia, going back to Russia with them, and I realized just how limited their opportunities were growing up and how much grief they had grown up with. Uh, and that made me change my, my whole stance. And the, the anger that I felt to them dissipated and became a sense of sadness uh, over, the, over the background in which they grew up uh, and a wish that it hadn't been so. On the other hand, if it hadn't been so, I wouldn't be writing books. So that's the uh, unfortunate truth. Uh, if you come from a happy background and you have a great stock portfolio, you're probably not going to go into the arts. Um, sometimes it happens. And I love the people that it happens to, but it's very rare. Let's just do one more question, and then it's time to buy books and sign books. Oh, I'll sign anything. <laughs> Other people's books. What, yeah. what did your uh, parents tell you about being Jewish? What, why was it so important to them that, that, you had, that, so important to them that you had a circumcision? At age eight. Yeah. I gave. I gave at the office. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was very important to my father. Uh, he was very into being Jewish in a way my mother wasn't. My mother was, was half Jewish, um, is half Jewish, I should say. Uh, it's funny, when I'm interviewed by like, Israeli papers, they're like, which half? Because <laughs> if, it's, if it's the wrong half, then I'm not technically Jewish. But it's, it's the right half. Yeah. <laughs> Are you happy? Now we can move on. Thank God. That was close. Whew. 
<laughs> I almost had to leave the room. Um, good, good. No. Um, so for him, it was very important. And he did crazy things, especially, you know, so a lot of them became very, a lot of people of my father's generation became very interested in Judaism after the Six-Day War. They felt this great pride in Israel. And this is when they started trying to attend synagogue and stuff like that. And my father did crazy things. He would march outside the Lermontov synagogue in, in Leningrad, uh, screaming, they would shout, we are Jews, which you really shouldn't be doing at that point. Um, and so it really meant a lot to him, and that's why I went to Hebrew school, I think, and why, yeah, that nice circumcision happened and all the other great things. Um, but he was also very, you know, what I liked about him was that he was also very satirical about everything. So while he was doing all this, pushing me desperately into Judaism, while he himself was not even that involved with it, I was sort of the you know, the, the sacrificial lamb, if you will. Um, but he would take me around. This is before I had any American friends. We lived in a neighborhood where there weren't a lot of Russians. And he would tell me these space operas that he called uh, the planet of the Yids in Russian. And in it, the, the Jews had their own planet uh, in, in a distant galaxy. And they kept being uh, surrounded by the space slobs who would bomb them with large torpedoes, large space torpedoes. And the Jews would build this sort of circumcised space shield around their planet. And uh, their leader was Captain Sharansky. So, obviously, a reference to Nathan Sharansky. And these stories were very funny, and that was my first access to satire. Um, and then, you know, so that was the sort of... If we're, if we're talking about the evolution of humor, those Planet of the Yid stories were the, were the beginning for me. Well, actually, let me backtrack one tiny thing. The other thing that my parents gave me in terms of humor was endless political jokes. Uh, I think growing up in Russia, I recently did a, I, I was in China for a month uh, to write an article about comedy in China. It's going to be a very short article. Uh, and, and, but Soviet humor was unbelievably hysterical, and so much of it was Jewish humor, in a way. I would say Jewish-Soviet political humor. I'll end with a joke that I, I love to tell because it's just so, so emblematic of where this came from and so emblematic of what my parents gave me as a kind of the gift of, of, of laughter. Yeah. So the joke is about the 1980 Olympics in, in Moscow, and Brezhnev, who's completely non-compost mentis, he's about to die, is, he has to deliver the, Olympics, the opening speech at the Olympics. So he gets up to the podium, doesn't know where he is, sort of looks around, picks up a paper, someone gives him a piece of paper. So he starts reading. He says, Oh! Oh! Someone runs up to him, says, his assistant says, Comrade General Secretary, those are just the Olympic rings. <laughs> and I'll end on that note. Thank you very much. <laughs>